ejection from the banking system can be random, happens for political reasons in the U.S. all the time. It's rarely reported about. And um, you can't, I, in a way, it's, it's, it's more devastating than being on probation for having been convicted for something because like, not being able to bank in 2023 is akin to not being able to function in society. Hello there. How are you all? Are you all doing well out there? Did you have a good weekend? It's been pretty crazy last week with everything that's going on with this kind of banking shit show and Credit Suisse now look like they're going to the wall. UBS picking up up on the cheap. If you didn't check out my show with Caitlin Long covering all this banking stuff, please do go and check that out. Um, But yeah, pretty crazy times. Bitcoin's rallying. It's one of those weird ones though where Bitcoin's rallying and it's sometimes hard to enjoy because you know with all these banking issues it's going to affect some people but you know it is what it is we'll keep producing the right content to keep you updated but anyway welcome to the what bitcoin did podcast which is brought to you by gemini the only place i'm using for buying bitcoin i'm your host peter mccormack and today we have the legend of doombird back on the show the feedback from the last show we did with the big green chicken was very good and as he was recently covering operation choke point i knew i had to get him back on the show to cover it now, I first saw this covered by my good friend Nick Carter, and we'll try and get him back on the show in Miami to cover this too, but who knows what will happen by then. Pretty crazy times out there. Anyway, Doomberg was brilliant on this one. I hope you enjoy this chat. If you've got any questions about this or anything else, you can email me at hello at whatbitcoindid.com, or you can jump into our Discord, or even join our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid. Doomberg, good to see you again, you big green chicken. Peter, fantastic to be here. Had such a blast last time. I tell you what, our emails and comments lit up after our last appearance, and it was a real blast. And so when you reached out to have us back on, we uh, accepted without hesitation. How are you doing on this fine day? Well, listen, I'm good, man. But with this crazy world we're living in right now, I think we could probably make a show every uh, every two or three days with all this crazy shit going on. (laughs) What is going on, man? Um, yeah, we put out a piece this morning called Don Jerome, where we uh, we uh, compared the, the events of the past week to the epic final act of The Godfather, where Michael Corleone takes care of all of the family business in one fell swoop. And it felt like that, especially on Sunday, when we saw this almost matter of fact, oh, by the way, we shut down Signature Bank um, as a throwaway paragraph in a Fed press release about the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank. And um, it, lest anyone had any doubt what this was all about, a headline just crossed as we started to hit record here that um, one of the conditions of buying signature from the FDIC will be that the buyer ceases all crypto activities. And so that was very clearly a, um, a shot across the bow against the crypto world, um, which is something we had you know, predicted and warned about for many years. Of course, not alone, many people thought the same thing, but to see that play out so brutally and so coldly in black and white uh, and the speed with which both of the major payment rails into the crypto universe were blown up. The analogy is sort of like what happened to the Nord Stream 2 pipelines. You know, you wake up one day and they're they're blown to smithereens. And so it's been fascinating. Well, it's quite interesting because it's also happening over here in the UK at the same time. Um, so I've just got up here, NatWest limits cryptocurrency transfers over scam fears. Uh, I know that I got an email from Gemini saying they've moved banking partner. I know Binance paused theirs uh, as well. So it's not only happening in the US, but it's starting to feel coordinated over here as well. I, I don't know if you've seen this UK stuff. Yes, we're following it closely. And um, 
we sort of envision a world where, um, you know, the U.S. dollar-based system, which we would wrap, you know, um, the five eyes countries in Europe into that U.S. dollar-based system, will potentially, I guess, operate a, a ring-fenced-in, KYC, AML-compliant universe of crypto. But um, th that presents some challenges. I'm, I'm not so sure. You know, another headline uh, earlier this week was Fidelity is up and running, you know, in the U.S., of course. But imagine if you're going to be interacting with somebody like Fidelity, you're pretty pretty well uh, cleansed from a KYC AML perspective. And so I, I don't know. This is really fascinating. We, we, our piece today was a little speculative, to be sure. But um, that's kind of when you have a, a blog, why not speculate once in a while? But it, it does pose some interesting questions, you know. And, um, and so, yeah, it, it, it does seem coordinated for sure. Yeah. And I, uh, I put out a little tweet uh, before this, which almost kind of like inspiration for the chat we're going to have. I, I was Googling Credit Suisse's scandals because it actually came up on the radio today. It had nothing to, do, nothing to do with crypto. They didn't even mention that. But on the radio when I was driving back uh, earlier today to come and uh, do this interview, they were talking about their scandals. They mentioned Mozambique and money laundering and spinal staff. Uh, human trafficking. They've got clients for human traffickers, uh, Venezuelans who've looted the country. Um, yeah, and just just a long list of fraudulent uh, clients they have or fraud they've been wrapped up in. And now they're obviously in a, well, they're calling it a liquidity crisis, but whatever, they're, they're in financial difficulties and they're immediately awarded a $44 billion lifeline. Whereas Bitcoiners who really are quite happy we're just buying their Bitcoin and holding it are treated like they are the criminals here. Well, when you're done Googling Credit Suisse, you can Google Deutsche Bank and um, and see. You know, I raise you a Deutsche Bank because when you want to talk about basically a criminal enterprise, in my view, um, with the amount of uh, the amount of money laundering that goes through these banks, it, it has to be that it is done knowingly. So it, it is a, a fascinating and I think a very legitimate critique of of these activities. And that's why we call the piece Don Jerome, because it's not like the authorities cracking down are the, uh, the, uh, the angels of goodness here. You know, this is basically one more powerful mob family cracking down on people who've gone off of their, uh, their desired path. And so, um, you know, it seems to be, look, look at JP Morgan with all of the whole Epstein scandal and, and, you know, what they just sued a former top, top executive trying to pin the blame for JP Morgan having enabled all of this uh, illicit activity uh, on him, on that one particular person, as though the rest of the bank isn't involved in risk management somehow. And, and so it is certainly a double standard. Um, we, we never doubted that it would be. Uh, but at the same time, as we said in the piece, broadly speaking, most Americans, if the U.S. says this is illegal and the banks forbid them from engaging in it, they won't. And so you will lose the, the median citizen. Um, it'll just be like... Um, we're no coiners because it just, you know, um, it, it just, we, we have, you know, a good life and, and assembled some wealth and happiness and we would be um, willing to protect that and, and the juice isn't worth the squeeze for us. It is for many and for many of your listeners and we're not criticizing that. But for the median American or, or Brit, when presented with the hassle of having to fight for a bank account's existence versus just ignoring a complete asset class, they will choose to ignore that asset class in our view. Well, look, listen, Doomberg, whether you guys hold Bitcoin or not, and I hold Bitcoin, as, as you would expect to know, we're still on the same side of this in that we both recognize the ills of uh, central banks and 
what's happening within these fraudulent uh, commercial banks. We both see everything that's happened is unfair. Um, I don't think you would agree with, certainly, I don't think you would agree with Bitcoin being uh, choked out away as an option for people. So we can be entirely on the same side of this. But when you mention these uh, medium people that you might lose, one of my difficulties is, is I'm like you, I'm spending all day on Twitter reading about these things, reading your articles when they come in my inbox, reading things with Lynn Alden. When I try and step outside my like daytime work circle into my friendship groups, I'm always struggling to try and explain this without sounding like some kind of nutter or conspiracy theorist. Because <laughs> I think my friends think I'm crazy, and you know I will show them things like the office of bunch of uh, office of budget responsibility in the UK. I'll show them how much money the government is overspending and. You know, why this may be one of the reasons that we have issues with uh, inflation. I will talk to them about uh, you know, uh, criminals uh, within banks, you know, using banks to launder money. And then when I bring up Bitcoin, they're like, nah, no, Pete. Yeah. And so I have a real struggle with communicating this in a way that p- people actually take it as seriously as I think they should. So it's fascinating that you should say that, Peter, because we had this conversation uh, in the office earlier this week. So the, the editor-in-chief of Doomberg has decided to take an extended holiday from Twitter. <laughs> and the world from that vantage point is completely different than the world they had experienced in the years and months before that. You know, because Twitter has d- dissolved into sort of a even greater toxic cesspool than it has been. And it can be difficult to be on Twitter. But when you live in the Twitterverse like we do, because we're, we, you know, we, our livings depend on being connected and you know, um, uh, connecting dots quickly and seeing information, you know, as it, as it is made available. The, nobody cares. No. So like we were, we were specifically talking about the context of the, uh, whether or not bank contagion because of Silicon Valley Bank and of course Signature and Silvergate. And now it looks like First Republic is in a spot of bother to steal a, a British phrase. Um, we, we, we speculated that if we went to our grocery store and asked five people, I asked 100 people about Silicon Valley Bank, and no, no more than five would have ever heard of it still today. And so um, there is a phenomenon for sure that when you are entrenched in the Twitter universe, the algorithm is designed to make you feel like there's always a mania somewhere. There's always a panic somewhere. That, that's what drives the dopamine, which drives the engagement. And so I, I concur. Like um, the vast, the, the median citizen in the UK has a distant and probably slightly negative view of Bitcoin as being, quote, off limits or nefarious. Um, and they just haven't spent the time thinking about it as we have. They don't, they're not afraid of the government. People still trust the government, strangely enough. Um, and it, like if they're, they're worried about, you know, um, making the mortgage payment and how the price of eggs is hurting their budget. And they're, they're not really pondering the sort of root causes of those things because to go there can lead to some pretty ugly answers, as, as we both know. Well, listen, the last five, six years of doing this, like an onion, I've been shedding my layers of uh, uh, supporting democracy and believing it's the best choice we have. And, you know, understand, like trying to make out that, look, I understand politics is messy and dirty, but democracy is great. I think I shed the final skins this last week or so where I was just like, I'm fucking done with this. And we can take Bitcoin out of the equation, Doomberg. We can take it completely out of the equation and I know with my friends, like that you say the price of eggs. I mean, I've got real world numbers. Um, look, it's going to sound very privileged to explain this next point, but but just it is relevant. My kids go to a school which I have to pay for. You know, I work hard to put them in there. 
Every year they put up the fees, 3 4%. Yesterday I got a letter saying they're up 11.5% of the school fees. Um, that's going to affect a bunch of people. A lot of people, like my dad sent me to good school. He had worked every hour he could to do that. You've got uh, uh, a bar I'm trying to buy at the moment. The electricity and gas prices are about to tr- triple because I've been on a long-term contract. Um, every single thing, whether it's refuse, uh, drinks, everything is going up. I know people are experiencing this and feeling the burn, but when I even try and help them connect those dots as to why it's happening, there's this kind of like aversion to going down that rabbit hole. And 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 all the, I think I know what will happen is we'll have a general election in two years and they'll change who they vote for. Yeah. And the same shit will happen. Yeah. So first of all, what does it say about our society where you have to pre-apologize for talking about the fact that you've worked hard and have been able to do your best to provide uh, an excellent education for your children at your own expense? But I digress. Um, I'll give you a, an example where nobody escapes here in the United States, which is um, the Obamacare healthcare exchange networks. Um, as you know, small business owners, uh, we don't, you know, we're not part of some corporate health plan. I know in the UK, of course, you have the, the national healthcare system, and, but in the US, it's it's you know uh, a perverted version of capitalism in the sense that um, you have to go into an open market and purchase it, but really it's an oligopoly. And um, since we've started our firm. Um, our healthcare costs have compounded at 12% annual, long before inflation was a thing. And um, our, our, um, you know, the amount you have to pay before the coverage kicks in just keeps growing and growing and growing. And, you know, the deductible. The deductible, so, yeah. Yeah. Like, so um, for a family of four in the United States, you're looking at basically on average $1,500 a month before anything kicks in. And a ten thousand dollar deductible. That's like the basically the catastrophic plan, Jesus. And, and it only goes up from there. And so the average, you know, person is out of pocket eighteen thousand dollars in premiums and ten thousand dollar deductible. So really, before you get anything meaningful, you have to cough up twenty eight grand. And and by the way, uh, I have a you know a relative dealing with uh, with 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 cancer and and been helping um, here and there over the years and the. Um, the, the, the bills at these hospital stays, if you actually look at the sort of the list price, um, it's just astronomical. And so, you know, you, you, you might twist a knee and be out 28 grand before you have to put out any, you know, it, it's just really staggering to me um, that, you know, the, the pressure on that average person, right? And so in a way it explains why they're sort of the distracted, too distracted by the tactical needs of the day to think about the strategic consequences of how we got here and where we're going. Well, the the squeeze is everywhere at the moment, and it's quite. We had our budget this week in the UK. I don't know if you followed the budget. Um, I mostly ignored it because I knew there was nothing in there that was going to change my life and make it better. I do know corporation tax is already going up, which is something that's going to squeeze my business more. Today, I had to deal with a, a pension issue that somebody you know, needs a pension, so I have to contribute to that. But there's a constant squeeze on my business. There's this constant squeeze on individuals. This constant squeeze happens. But at no point of this budget did anyone come out within the government and said, yeah, we're going to reduce the size of government. We're going to uh, reduce taxes. This is what we think will be a good way of stimulating the economy. It was everything was done with taking more money off them that they think they can distribute in a better way to stimulate the economy. And I'm just like, look, this is bullshit. I know how to deploy capital better than you. And you're taking it away from me and you're making it harder for me on every business I have. Yet you as an institution continue to grow. Yeah, in the in the U.S. again, it, it's it's something like forty plus percent of the economy now represents local, state, and federal expenditures, and um, 
And, and our analogy is this is a, a giant game of Jenga. And there's only so many bricks from the bottom that you can take to put on top before the whole edifice collapses. Now, how close we are to that remains to be seen. Um, but it does seem like we're reaching unsustainable levels. You know, Washington, D.C., in the U.S., compared to the rest of the country, is this garden of opulence um, like you wouldn't believe. I mean, um, the concentration of millionaires in Washington, D.C. would shock you. Um, and it's all basically lobbyists and former politicians, um, you know, um, rape, raping the public basically for ill-gotten gains. And, um, and as long as you pay off the right politicians and so on. And, and look, forever thus, I suppose, if you go back and look at headlines in the 50s and 60s, you would see similar things, but that was back when the size of government was 20%. <laughs> and now that it's 40 or 45%, it's becoming a real cancer. And Biden's latest budget is talking about raising the capital gains tax from you know, low 20s to high 30s, uh, nearly doubling the capital gains tax, which again punishes entrepreneurs. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's frustrating to watch. The, I mean, if you want to talk about broken politics, I mean, come to the U.S. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's really amazing. And I had somebody reach out to me from, um, from the uh, former East Germany when we wrote this piece about, again, uh, crypto, which we started with poker, you know, um, called Pandora's Precedent. Yeah, great article. And, uh, and this person said, um, you know, I'm reminded of, um, you know, before the wall came down about how as things got worse, citizens retreated to the comfort of their own home garden. You know, like you created a local environment that was peaceful, that you could be happy in, and you did your best to close your brain to what was going on outside. And uh, she said that your article makes me suspect that uh, this is beginning to happen in places like the U.S., where, you know, we have all of these tropes about freedom and all this stuff. But in reality, um, you know, good luck trying to get a lot of U.S. dollars out of the U.S. dollar system if you wanted to move somewhere. Like, it, it, we talk about capital controls in China. Um, you got the exit tax. <laughs> you got the exit tax and, um, and so on. And, and so, you know, it's... I guess, you know, there's got to be some silver lining in here somewhere, and I'm sure we'll find it over the next few minutes. But uh, it, it is, it, it does seem like things are coming to a head. Yeah, revolution is probably probably coming. Okay, so let's talk about this Pandora's president, uh, precedent, because um, you know, Nick Carter himself, you've probably seen what he's written about, Operation Choke Point, and it's become very, very clear what's happening. Uh, before we get into what you talked about and that happened with the poker industry, uh, which I've got an interesting anecdote, by the way, um, do you separate crypto and Bitcoin or do you consider them separate in this? Because uh, I can see a much larger argument, even though I don't agree entirely with it, I can see a larger argument for choking out parts of the crypto industry. Whereas I, I think I always consider, uh, naturally, I've got a Bitcoin show, I consider Bitcoin slightly different. Sure. I do consider Bitcoin, I consider its utility. I've seen how it's been used. I use it. It serves multiple purposes for me. I've never really bought or used any other crypto since 2017 when I first discovered crypto because I have no use for any of it. And most of it is bullshit or it's, you know, scams or, uh, you know, a, a way for people to maybe launder money. Like I just, I, I'm not interested in NFTs, DAOs, tokens or anything, but I do have a very significant interest in Bitcoin. Do you separate the two in your head and do you separate the two when you're considering this kind of choking out? Uh, so three-part answer. Yes, we do separate Bitcoin from crypto for the following reason, which is the U.S. government does today as well, because it is, it is, a, it is regulated as an asset. 
Um, and as long as you dutifully report your gains and losses to the IRS, um, it is totally legal to hold. Um, and so not only do we distinguish it, but the U.S. government does as well. But what we hinted at in Pandora's precedent and what we said overtly in Don Jerome this morning is when you go to that intermediate world where the U.S. has choked off crypto, but Bitcoin is still free and fully legal, it's difficult to imagine a world where money launderers don't take advantage of the fact that Bitcoin can be sent with basically no friction peer-to-peer -to, -peer to circumvent the newly installed anti-money laundering guardrails of the crypto world. And then eventually they'll come for your, your Bitcoin too. Uh, we're not saying that that's a good thing. We're saying that that's likely if you follow the train of logic. And so um, the point of Pandora's precedent is how dangerous it is. And in fact, we quoted Nick Carter's piece uh, quite extensively uh, in Pandora's precedent. Um, as an aside, by the way, um, one of the things that's lacking from our discourse is like people assume that if you're skeptical on Bitcoin, you would never talk to or engage in a conversation with Nick Carter or, or vice versa. Like we've written skeptically about crypto and originally neutrally about Bitcoin and maybe even slightly favorably because we do see the, we're sympathetic to the arguments for it and why it exists. Um, you know, we can have a discussion where we agree to disagree and we try to learn something that's very, very lacking in our, in our discourse today. So we of course, we read Nick Carter's piece and of course it made us uncomfortable. And while we think he, you know, um, he minimized by absence the, the sheer volume of fraud in the crypto world, um, the broader points he were making are, I think, are, are very much front and center for anybody who cares about personal freedom and, and liberty. And um, the U.S. government has weaponized access to the banking system to achieve political means. And with each passing episode, that median person that you and I wonder about becomes dull to the outrage. So one of the points we made in Pandora's precedence is when they originally did this, of course, and for those who aren't familiar with the original Operation Choke Point, this was done during the Obama presidency where they illegally leaned on regulated banks to choke off access to banking and therefore destroy those businesses potentially for um, politically disfavored groups, but still totally legal groups like um, uh, gun shops and payday lenders. And when that was uncovered, it was a huge scandal. And there were congressional hearings and there was outrage and the FDIC backed down and the payday industry successfully sued where the FDIC settled on favorable terms to that industry. None of that's happening today because that's yesterday's scandal and we've been dulled by it. We've been, we're numb to it now. Now everyone just expects, of course, it's perfectly natural that the US government without even having to have uh, due process even fake due process can just shut you or kick you out of the banking system. And we said in the piece, like if you're even tangentially associated with crypto in the US, you, you best be prepared for lengthy calls from your bankers doing background checks and what's your business and what are you doing? You will very quickly find that the digits that you see on the screen that allegedly account for the dollar value of your deposits, those don't belong to you. Um, you get to spend those if the government decides you're allowed to spend those, which is exactly opposite of how the country was meant to be created and run. And we start that piece with a story with a very good friend who was rolled up in the, uh, the, um, the poker roll up of, of, of more than a decade ago. 
And, and yeah. you know, the man did nothing wrong, got totally wiped out, was nearly bankrupted, and literally is still losing bank accounts 12 years later. Um, it's incredible. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security and is the best way for you to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be time for you to take your security a bit more seriously, because remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. And Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transactions with full transparency in the Ledger Live app, and honestly, it couldn't be easier. I've been a Ledger customer since early 2017. I'm still using the same Nano S I bought then, and I've got a few more of their products. I absolutely love everything they do. Ledger also have a very new product coming. It's called Stacks. It's going to be dropping in the summer. I've already pre-ordered mine. Now, the pre-order is sold out, but there is a wait list, so go and get on that while you can. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. That is shop.ledger.com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other, BitCasino is the best online casino for Bitcoiners, and with 24-7 live chat support, you can get all the help you require. To find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-M-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Iris Energy. Now, as you've probably noticed, we have been increasingly covering Bitcoin mining on the show. And as the team at Iris Energy share mine and Danny's values, they're such a great fit for what Bitcoin did and for you, our listeners. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner who has used 100% renewable energies since inception. Iris Energy targets markets with low-cost excess renewable energy, and they build and operate their own proprietary data centers. And the team is led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across infrastructure, renewables, and digital assets. In fact, Iris Energy's NASDAQ IPO was the only Bitcoin mining IPO to be led by top-tier investment banks, including JP Morgan and Citi. Now, Iris Energy know that Bitcoin mining can be done sustainably, supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem as well as the energy transition. Iris Energy is the leading 100% renewable energy miner. And if you want to find out more about them, then please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y.co, or look up their ticker I-R-E-N on NASDAQ. Also today, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. With everything that happened last year in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach, as they don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O.
Well, I, re- I remember what happened in the poker industry because I used to play a lot of online poker. I used to play the six-seater sit-and-go tournaments. And I can't remember the time whether it was Victor Chandra or PokerStars. I, I used to play it on them. There was a lot of tables. are always full. And I remember going on one day and it was just there wasn't very many players there anymore. And I didn't know why at the time. And then obviously later on I heard about the kind of crackdown on uh, offshore poker websites. But do you want to tell the story so people sure. understand the precedent? So it was called Black Friday in the poker world. And um, in the U.S., with the boom of online poker, there was no clear regulatory regime uh, in place. And this is all going to sound very familiar to crypto enthusiasts or Bitcoin enthusiasts listening. In fact, uh, a fair reading of the laws is that the Congress never intended for online poker to be illegal. It was specifically not named in uh, a piece of legislation that passed in 2006 called Unlawful Internet Gambling Enforcement Act. And the real, um, the real challenge was, is poker gambling or is poker a game of skill? Now, you've played poker, I've played poker. Skill is the ultimate determinant and mm-hmm. who plays poker well. And so um, these three large you know, um, companies, uh, Poker Stars, Ultimate Bats, and Full Tilt, I believe at the time, um, a, an aggressive prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, um, Prepara, decided that he found, a, um, he found an old misdemeanor, a law, a law in New York that made it a class A misdemeanor, punishable up to a year in prison, to run a game of chance where bets are placed within the state. Now, again, is poker really a game of chance? I mean, I suppose there's some luck involved, but integrated over time, poker is a skill game. And um, once you have a law that's broken, if you've used a bank in any way, shape, or form to do that, there's, there's a plethora of felonies to choose from to hammer people with um, uh, if, an, if a, prosecutor, a prosecutor wishes to be. And in fact, this raid came um, in April. I just want to make sure I got the date right. Yeah, April 15th, 2011, tax day, ironically. Um, just the prior December, Congress was debating uh, passing legislation that would have overtly legalized online poker and regulated it. It would have created a tax stream. It would have created a new industry. There was all kinds of innovative things going on in that space. And it failed largely because the rumor at the time was that the National Football League was opposed to it. Um, So that got killed at the last minute. Um, And then this prosecutor in New York decided to crush the entire industry. And and he did so on very flimsy means. But then, like, so my friend, who was, you know, an investor in one of these companies and and was a famous poker player, a talented poker player, and he had um, a whole series of investments in poker companies and others, that I would guess probably were worth about $100 million on paper. And he got rolled up, and his, his, he, was, he was wiped out. He was on the verge of bankruptcy. And um, the feds said, you will, you will settle this civil complaint that we will draft. Um, you won't have to admit guilt, but if you don't, we're going to take you to the mat, and we're going to put you in jail. Okay, so they and blackmailed so, him. Essentially, well, the quote in the piece from him, because I, I suspect as part of his... Um, consent decree. He's not allowed to deny having done anything wrong, um, even though he didn't have to admit it. He said, and I quote, when the U.S. government decides that it wants to put you out of business, the specifics of the law aren't nearly as important as the intent of the prosecutors. And here's the money quote, the amount of leverage they can bring to bear against you is formidable and vastly outweighs the protections of due process. There was no due process here. His net worth was destroyed and they were like, making him an offer he can't refuse to, to pull a quote from the Godfather. You sign on the dotted line or, um, 
if you think this hurts, wait, wait, to, wait until you see what we'll do if you don't. And this is not due process. And this is not how um, America was founded. It's not how most people think the country operates. And it's easy to say, oh, poker, poker's kind of sketchy. I'm not involved in poker, so I'm not going to really worry about it. As long as I don't play poker, I'll be okay. Well, that's not really how things go because there's ethical incrementalism. Once something is normalized, it only gets a little bit more aggressive, like we're seeing now with, you know, uh, Operation Choke Point 2. Aren't the three branches of government meant to prevent this from happening? Well, that's, um, I, I remember when I was in the corporate world and um, a wise mentor once said something to me. Um, There's a vast chasm between having an argument and having a case. (laughs) 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 And um, sure, uh, your rights are being violated. Uh, Write a letter to your congressman. In the meantime, you've got 24 hours to sign this this, uh, uh, this civil charge, um, you know, resolution that we've drafted for you or we'll see you in court. This is your deadline. Like, go ahead and call your congressman. Uh, Thursday at 9 a.m., this offer expires, you know? So what do you do? I mean, again, what are the consequences um, to the prosecutor in this case? Nothing. And in reality, months later, much of the legal underpinning was overturned in the courts. But that doesn't mean that my friend isn't still losing bank accounts. What is, where does he go to get his reputation back? And when you guys are discussing this internally or you're thinking about this and why it's happened, do you think this is coordinated group, some kind of group oppression or do you think this is just how the organism of uh, government will naturally evolve towards? Yeah, I would say the latter. There are evil yeah. people in the government who, you know, um, power, power structures distill psychopathy. Let's be very clear. <laughs> it's the same in corporate America. It's the same in government. Um, you know, if there's levers of power to be had, um, psychopaths tend to distill into those positions. They self-select for them. And if you have any doubt, just read the Lyndon Johnson biographies by Robert Caro, and, and you'll be shocked to see the type of behavior that uh, he went through during his entire career to achieve the apex of, of political power in the United States. Um, and so part of it is, is a consequence of the design. And then there's another really important factor at play here, which is the primary purpose of a bureaucracy is to grow, hmm. right? Um, uh, having been in charge of large bureaucracies that, you know, I have decided or our team has decided needed to shrink. Boy, is it hard to do. Right? And um, the purpose of a bureaucracy is to grow. This is why it's almost impossible to fire a federal employee in the United States. Good luck. And so um, if you look at the number of people employed by the federal government, it, it never goes down. You know, corporations still have restructurings because they have, you know, investors to be accountable for. But the best place to be in a recession is on the government dole. Yeah, I mean, this is what uh, Eric Voorhees said to me very early on. I don't know if you know Eric. He's a crypto guy, early Bitcoin, uh, mm-hmm. uh, staunch libertarian. One of my very first interviews with him always stuck with me. He said, the problem with government is it always grows. And it's like, why can't we just, you know, I- I'm not here saying let's get rid of all of government. Let's get rid of, let's, let's shrink it by 1%. And, you know, you can go back to COVID when... Uh, and, and, you know, I've got some of my, during the time of COVID, I'd sef- definitely interpreted some bits wrong. But uh, when they locked us down and they locked down businesses and people lost their incomes and lost, you know, and did lose their businesses, everybody in government still got paid. Yeah, look, we lost 85% of our business from apex to trough um, in 60 days. And there wouldn't be Doomberg if it wasn't for COVID. 
um, because we had to reinvent ourselves and we did. And we ended up going into the content space and then we eventually succeeded and then launched Doomberg. But um, so in a way, COVID was a blessing, but that's sort of the entrepreneurial spirit um, that we have. But there's no question that um, you know we had uh, a record month, I believe, in April for revenue and a record month in June for all the wrong reasons. And <laughs> it happened that quick. And then you know, you still had a lot of uncertainty. You know, when would we reopen? What do we do? Luckily, um, we had sort of saved for a rainy day and we were able to, you know, um, make it through that period of crisis. And we didn't go to zero and, and we were able to sort of tighten our personal budgets and then, and then re regrew our business in a different vertical within, within a year. But that was a huge blow. And uh, as you say, um, but also, you know, if you're an employee of a big corporation and you manage to keep your job, very similar but it really did crush small businesses and, and entrepreneurs disproportionately so. And, um, and I still think we're seeing the aftershocks of that uh, to this day. Yeah, and definitely a, a widening wealth gap that's come off the back of that. And, and all these other just ongoing issues that are, are still people are still having to live with. Um, just going back to the, uh, the poker story and what happened there, like what were, how, how, did it, yeah, how did it all end? I mean, was it just a complete shutdown of the poker industry no. in the U.S.? No, in fact, um, I may get some of the details wrong because it, it, I, I wasn't in the poker world. I only know this because of my friend. But ultimately, I believe um, Full Tilt Poker was forced into a shotgun marriage with um, uh, poker stars. So poker stars had survived Black Friday and had made... U.S. customers hold. There was a, an extra scandal at full tilt because um, they had lost access to banking and the CEO, uh, I believe, unbeknownst to the board, was still making players whole even though they didn't have the money. And so there was a hole. Um, eventually, um, full tilt was merged into PokerStars, I believe. And, and it took a few weeks or months for, or perhaps even years for people to be made whole, but most people were made whole. And um, I'm unaware of what the regulations are in the U.S. today, but I do know that online poker is still widely played around the world and, and people are, um, you know, uh, enjoying a, a good game of uh, skill and risk. And so, um, but it was, and, it, and, and I did mention earlier, like I do believe that the legal underpinnings for the original warrants were tossed out of court. Um, hmm. But that doesn't matter if you've signed, you know, so take my friend. Um, and again, I don't want to give away too many details because he did ask, you know, for anonymity, which I totally understand. But um, if you have a bank account and they, they do a spot check on you and they see that you settled with the, S with the DOJ. To that bank, your business is just not worth it to them. And so ejection from the banking system can be random, um, happens for political reasons in the US all the time. It's rarely reported about. And um, you can, I, in a way, it's, it's, it's more devastating than being on probation for having been convicted for something because like, not being able to bank in 2023 is akin to not being able to function in society. And, and you know, uh, as psychopaths distilled into positions of power in ever-growing bureaucracies, they see the power of this tool. And it didn't take long, of course, for partisans to realize that. And so in the piece, after we talked about crypto and, and we, you know, we introduced poker, talked about crypto, we talked about the battle over um, fossil fuels and global warming and ESG and, and how activists on both sides realize that this is quickly becoming a game about who can convince the banks to do something. And uh, we have a picture in the piece about um, environmental protesters sitting outside of a Chase Bank lobby 
um, with signs that say chase funds death because they underwrite, you know, the development of natural gas or, or oil fields and so on. And, and so the environmentalists have, were quick to realize that if they could choke off the fossil fuel industry, they could kill it. And now the Republican side, the conservative side, the oil and gas companies are fighting back by revoking banking and investment, you know, management uh, fees from firms that um, disproportionately defund or debank the fossil fuel sector. So now we have this tug of war. Instead of a strategic discussion around what's legal and what should happen, it is a tactical, extra-legal brawl um, where, you know, one of the things that didn't make it into the piece, but we speculated, like, there, there might come a point where the CEO positions of banks are appointed by the president and must be approved by the Senate, no different than the uh, Supreme Court battles that we have recognizing that the power of a CEO of a bank is, is in many ways more powerful than a local politician. Huh. So is, is this why you think not only are they bailing out the banks, but also uh, you know, stepping in early with the likes of uh, Signature because they want con- complete control of the banking sector? I think they are ejecting crypto from the U.S. banking system. That is what's going on. Well, that, that as well. But then also, I guess, uh, in seeing all that, is that where you're kind of like, even if it's mild, but rising sympathies for Bitcoin is coming from? Um, well, my sympathies for Bitcoin predate this. Um, I, I, since I'm a bit of a gold bug, I understand. If you look at the rationale for Bitcoin and the rationale for owning gold, there's a lot of overlap in those mm. Venn diagrams. You know, to the people who enjoy gold, like us, gold is 5,000 years worth of historical money. All other fiats are impostures. Um, and, and in a way, as we said in the piece um, this morning, um, Bitcoin has been sort of um, shopped around as a digital version of gold, a new and improved, one that you can operate online and you don't have to worry about you know, um, weighing your gold and whether it's pure and, you know, the, and so on and so on. But at the same time, as we said in the piece, look, the U.S. outlawed the possession of gold in the 1930s and it wasn't legalized again until the 70s. And they could do the same thing with Bitcoin. They will yeah. never be able to kill Bitcoin but they can make monetizing it within the legal system of the U.S. extremely difficult. Yeah, uh, and I'm with you on the analogies to gold, but, you know, even Wiki, I mean, WikiLeaks is one of the first great examples of, uh, they went through their own essential operation choke point when uh, they were debanked by all financial rails, whether it was MasterCard, Visa, PayPal, and it all happened very quickly. And you talk to, or you see the interviews with Julian Assange, and he will say, Bitcoin saved WikiLeaks. Bitcoin was the thing that allowed them to still function, receive donations, and continue to function, like have, have an operational business. Two points. Um, that's precisely why we think Bitcoin will be a target. Mm-hmm. And two, forget about the financial system. They were um, deplatformed from the uh, from the servers. <laughs> the web page was mm-hmm. was not um, hosted. You know, it, the, the perfect example is what happened to Parler after the. Um, January 6th affair in Washington, D.C. You know, they say, if you get kicked off of Twitter, just invent your own Twitter. Okay, you go try and do that. And Amazon, uh, AWS doesn't host it. And at the Apple store and the Google Play store, kick out the app. And, and basically, um, Parler got parlored. It's, it's actually a, a verb now. And regardless of what you think of Parler and whatever your political views are, um, doesn't there's, no question, there's no question that that social media site was killed with no due process for political reasons. And um, and and WikiLeaks webpage, you can't find Wiki, like WikiLeaks was deplatformed from the internet. Um, and again, these what what due process uh, was has Julian? If you, it's actually quite a scandal. 
Of course. I mean, he's de- he's been deplatformed as a human within functional society. Mm-hmm. And for engaging in the act of reporting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, reporters in the United States have long gotten, you know, um, classified leaks that became the sources of great stories that blew up into scandals. That's, that's what the press is meant to do. Not mm-hmm. anymore. That has been shifted to the alternative press. One of our fears, of course, is that Substack, by allowing the proliferation of all manner of of reporting of, of various types and talents and so on, but like being a relatively open platform will make them a target eventually. Um, and so, you know, we shall see. We're eyes wide open uh, on that, which is the name of one of our pieces that touches on this. And um, and it is, you know, I, I do think more and more people are waking up to it, um, but we, we got a long way to go. We're early, Peter, <laughs> by yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, just look, my hope is there is enough independent media now, whether it's yourself, whether it's a, a Joe Rogan, whoever it is, is out there just trying to trying to expose this a bit more to the point where enough people care. And I feel like the fraction of society, the fraction of the financial system, uh, I feel like we were at a time where we have an opportunity now to to make enough people care. I would say your example of Joe Rogan is both hopeful and also uh, a little depressing because he is undoubtedly the biggest of the big alternative voices and he is beloved by tens of millions of people and he is the ultimate, you know, I guess the only one bigger than him that I can think of is Mr. Beast, but they're, they're executing completely different business models. But they also tried to cancel him, didn't they? Mm-hmm, of course they did. Um, very specifically. And so um, luckily he managed to persist, um, but... I think also, uh, how could that not shape his discourse, like even subconsciously? How does that not at least make him have doubts about whether he should go as hard on a certain topic as he might have prior to the attempted cancellation? You know, in many ways, it achieved many, it, it achieved several desired effects. Um, so yeah, it's, it's an open question, but he is certainly a very big voice, and I hope he keeps it. This show is brought to you by Fortress. Now, 4% of all Bitcoin transactions on an MOM basis go through Fortress, which equates to $7.7 billion since their inception in 2017, of which $3.6 billion happened last year, 2022, last year alone. Now, Bitcoin is more than just a holding asset. We see large organizations already using it in their day-to-day operations. And if you want to do this, you do not need to overhaul your system. You simply need to integrate Fortress to handle all your Bitcoin treasury operations. If you want to find out more about this, please head over to Fortress.com, which is F-O-R-T-R-I-S.com. Next up, we have Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm not selling a Bitcoin right now. Are you? I hope you're not. Now, I am also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've also set up a DCA with twice monthly Bitcoin buys and I've been stacking sats all through this bear market. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. And Gemini are running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD, and new customers get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. If you want to find out more, please head over to gemini.com forward slash WBD which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash W-B-D. Also, today we have Wasabi. 
who I will now be using to make sure I keep all my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi 2.0 makes Bitcoin privacy effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Rather than having to choose to coin join like in Wasabi 1, this is all done automatically. So all you need to do is receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can send privately. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement, something you know I'm always moaning on about. Now, you also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi, so you don't need to leak your IP address, and there is no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I'm taking a lot more seriously, and Wasabi 2 makes this so much easier. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Okay, can we talk a little bit more about, because we're talking about Operation Choke Point 2.0, essentially, which might become a rolling Operation Choke Point. But can you talk a little bit more in detail what happened with the original Operation Choke Point? What happened back in... 2013, because I'm not sure people are exactly sure what happened. So at its essence, the FDIC illegally put pressure on regulated banks to stop doing business with payday lenders, gun shops, and maybe a few other. Was it uh, sex workers as well? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, pick your favorite. Mm, loosely associated with vice-type industries. You know, the U.S. Mm. back then was still a pretty conservative place. But um, the manner in which it was done was all informal which is what made it illegal. And um, so here's the challenge. The banks in the U.S. are quasi-public-private partnerships. And it's very lucrative to be an executive at a big bank. I mean, look at Jamie Dimon's net worth. So if the government basically controls your charter, as Signature found out this weekend, um, what the government says to you, even informally, can have devastating consequences if you don't Pay attention, right? And so uh, if you whisper into Jamie Dimon's ear and say, look, you should probably stop banking with gun shops. Um, and if they do so after sort of a, one of the many unfortunate and countless numbers of, of mass shootings that we have in the U.S., where the political pressure is high and there's a lot of sympathy for such a course of action, um, whatever your views are on gun control, it is in the, at the moment, constitutionally protected. And, um, but if you're a gun shop owner and uh, Bank of America decides uh, they're not going to, uh, in, uh, you know. So here's a perfect example. Uh, as a fallout of Operation Short Point, once people realized that this was a possibility, um, anti-gun groups have been pressing the payment processors to put a new and unique tag on gun sales, as opposed to like general, let's just say general merchandise. I don't know what it's tagged at today, but they want a special tag on it. And the gun industry has been lobbying against that because once you have that tag, it's very easy with the flick of a switch to suddenly overnight, PayPal, Stripe, stop processing payments for anybody involved in the industry. Um, and so the, there's no question, not just banking, payment processes are a point source of power as well. So with Operation Troll Point, the FDIC essentially put the word out to the banks that they should stop processing payments for these industries, and many did. And that's what caused the uproar. Um, much of that was overturned, as I said. Um, they were sued, and, and the payday lenders effectively won that lawsuit. But over time, you know, they keep coming back for another bite at the apple and another bite at the apple, and that's where poker was really the, the next big thing after, after the... Uh, 
after that series of events, it's, and so on. So, sorry, poker led to Operation Choke Point, which led to Operation Choke Point 2.0. That's the sort of chronology of it. Um, and now we see 2.0, and it's crypto. And okay, like you could say, I, I'm a no corner. And um, I've always answered no on that IRS. Do you have any digital currencies uh, on my taxes correctly? And so maybe I just don't worry about it. Hey, as long as I don't do crypto, quote, I'll be fine. But that's not how this goes, right? Um, pretty soon it'll be, you know, hey, your views on the solutions to climate change, uh, we think that's disinformation. And so um, we think banking with you represents uh, an unnecessary risk for our franchise. Here's a cashier's check for your account balance and your, your account is closed. Um, and you have no recourse. Like that is totally possible. Well, look, I can give you um, two examples from the UK. My personal bank, about two years ago, I banked with Lloyd's. Uh, I'd been with them for 21 years, and I got a call from customer service. Customer services asking me to run through some of my transactions. Uh, and I said to them, do I have to? And they said, no. I said, well, I'm not going to. I'm, I'm a grown-up. I'm... I don't, have, I don't know who you are. Why am I talking to some random person in a call center about what I spend my money on? This is my money. If I've done anything illegal, then you have due process. Um, and I received a letter and my accounts were closed down two weeks later. And then separately, I'd moved my business account to a company called Wise. And Wise were very specific in their terms and conditions saying that you cannot send your money to exchanges, to crypto exchanges to buy and sell crypto. That's what it said. Uh, I had an invoice paid because we're a podcast where one of our sponsors is a crypto company. It's Gemini. So I had my, uh, I, I received a payment from them. I'd received lots of payments, by the way, over the years for sponsorships. But when this one came in, they questioned it. And I said, um, you know, it's a sponsor for my podcast. It's a Bitcoin podcast and they're a crypto company. And even though there was no, nothing in their terms and conditions, they immediately froze my bank account, froze access to my funds. I couldn't, you know, there was no way I could have made payroll that week, I mean, I did eventually through personal money. I had to open up a new bank account, which took time, and you know, transfer the funds across. And yeah, you know, but there was there was no reasons given on either of them. It's we no longer want you as a, as a customer in both scenarios. Where all I'd done is ask for some privacy on a personal level, and uh, they didn't like the company I was doing business with. Yeah. So we in the piece, Pandora's president, we said, if your business has crypto in its name or you're considered a high-profile individual associated with the industry, prepare for possible ejection from the traditional banking system and um, prepare for that. And it's scary because, again, it's not actually your money <laughs> and there's no way to operate with, outside of the banking system. Like it's, it's the equivalent of telling people to, to build their own Twitter because they don't like the political nature of the, of the uh, censorship that happened you know, uh, before and after the, the last election. Um, well, good luck with that if the servers aren't going to allow you to do it or if the app stores aren't going to list your, your app. You know, like we live in a world where we need ultimately a new bill of financial freedom, like a new bill of financial rights. Like it should be much, much harder for a bank to close an account on somebody. Um, Look, they have a legitimate right in many ways to ask about transactions. We've had those calls. You know, we, we have a client from overseas and, um, and when, they, when they pay our retainer, uh, more, more often than not, it's probably too strong, but occasionally we get a call from a compliance officer at the bank asking for more details and can we see a copy of your, your contract and is this person a real thing? Because they're worried about, they're not actually worried about us. 
they're worried about being accused by their regulators of not doing enough. It's kind of like, I don't know if this is the way it is in the UK, but in the US, yeah. it's become more and more, well, what I'm, this is a different example, but I think it's a, it's a similar incrementalism. Um, if you go buy a bottle of wine in the US today, and um, they have to check your ID, right? They have to make sure that you're over the legal drinking age, which in my state is 21. Well, I can tell you that at the grocery store, there's a little button on the computer where the, the person, you know, because it's all self-checkout now, of course, too, because, you know, they've gotten rid of all of those jobs. Um, it used to be about two years ago that the button was, I acknowledge this person is over 30. And they didn't even have to look at your ID. Like it was on, incumbent upon the person looking at you saying, yeah, this person's not under the age of 21. Um, last year, that button got changed to, I acknowledge this person is under the age of 40. And now that button has been elevated to, I acknowledge that this person is under the age of 50. And every time I buy a bottle of wine, which is, you know, more, more often than not when I'm at the grocery store, they literally take my license and scan it in now. Right? And so it used to be you just showed your license and they looked at you and they knew that, you know, you weren't any issue. But now it's become, and why does a grocery store do that? They're not actually doubting that I'm over 21. They're deathly afraid of losing their liquor license. Of course. On a technicality. We don't have the, with the um, license and laws, we don't have the same here. It's do, do they, you know, and it's different places. Do they look over 21 or 25? And that's a buffer. And they don't get in particular big trouble when they make mistakes. I mean, it happens, but it's not like the US where I still get asked for ID to buy alcohol. But what we do have, we do have a very similar thing in the banking sector. And, and what it is, is that the government has uh, uh, outsourced financial surveillance to the banks. Yes, 100%. And by the way, it's a nuisance for me. And because I'm sensitive to such things, um, I always get mildly annoyed when it happens. But I give the person my driver's license and I, I buy my bottle of wine because I have guests coming over and I, I don't want to go through the pain of going to a store that doesn't yet do that, right? And so this is the perfect example of incrementalism and accepting an ever-encroaching surveillance state. Um, and when you apply that very simple but powerful analogy, like it, it literally, I saw it with my own eyes in the past 18 months, it's gone from 30 to 40 to 50. And it's soon, they'll just wipe that out and say, you must scan your driver's license to buy alcohol. That's what's coming. Like that's the, you know, and then after that, it's, don't you think you've purchased enough alcohol, Mr. Doomberg? You know, like it's coming. Um, and back to central bank digital currencies and all of these things converging on the eye of Soren, as, as Ben Hunt correctly describes the intent of the U.S. Treasury. Well, it's this kind of surveillance singularity that's coming, which uh, freaks me out as somebody who thinks they live in a fairly free society, but uh, and tries not to be a conspiracy theorist, but at the same time is... You know, sympathetic to conspiracies because so many of them have come true. <laughs> well, you know the origin of that phrase, of course, right? Uh, it, it was in, concocted by the CIA after Kennedy's assassination. To, huh. uh, I to, didn't, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, it, it never existed in the vernacular before then, and uh, it was created to uh, take credibility away from those who were challenging the official narrative of, of, of President Kennedy's assassination. And so, um, that's a rather, I, you know, I. I I find it so intellectually lazy when people are quick to dismiss um, interpretation of events as a, quote, conspiracy theory. That's always a flag for me, that the person um, dismissing the hypothesis as a conspiracy theory um, has done very little intellectual work on the, on the subject. 
I think it's hard so sometimes for people. I, I think especially maybe more so here in Europe than the US. I think the US, there's a, certainly there's a certain um, uh, political arm that is a little bit more distrusting of government, wants to be a little bit more independent. But I think in the US, you do a better job of distrusting government and questioning. Whereas in I think in the UK and the Europe, we're, we're a little bit more like, we just kind of accept everything. Yeah, that's fine. But but for me, it's taken me a few years to kind of, like I said to you earlier, to shed these layers like an onion to the point where I was just like, look, this is, this is bullshit. None of this makes sense. And trying to get enough people to do that is very, very hard because, and actually, I say because, I don't actually know. I can... I can guess ideas. I think maybe some people just don't want to face this. They just want to get on with their life. They, you know, some people just find it too hard to believe that you know, we're we're kind of steamrolling towards you know, Chinese uh, surveillance state style operations. I think there's a number of reasons, but I keep coming back to Doomberg. I keep coming back to look at what what do we do? What can I do? What can we do about this? Because something has to change. Because we know where this heads, and it is, it's not good. So the analogy I would use um, over here in North America is Canada's very similar to Europe in that regard. You know, mm. very polite country. I know the country extremely well. I have friends and relatives in the country. And the, um, you're correct in that the founding of the U.S. Uh, you know, occurred as a, as a rebellion, of course. And ironically, it was a rebellion over taxes. Yeah, <laughs> which yeah, no. which uh, the ultimate irony, here we are, you know, two centuries plus later, but... The thing that unites Canadian and British culture is state-sponsored national broadcasting. The vast majority of Canadians get their news from the CBC. And I bet in the UK, BBC is a very powerful influencer of culture. And yeah, well, we don't, they've, we they've don't lost have a battle this US. week. They lost a big battle this week. I don't know if you're following it. This no. uh, professional footballer called, well, ex-professional footballer called Gary Lineker. He is... Uh, He's one of England's most famous ever players. He was a striker uh, until Wayne Rooney was our highest ever goal scorer. Yeah, much loved across the country. Not by everyone, but like the majority of people love him. Uh, he works on a show called Match of the Day on BBC. So on a Saturday, uh, after all the games are played in the evening, it's an hour-long show. Him and two pundits, they watch highlights of the games and talk about them. It's a hugely popular show, a massive cultural importance to people who love football in the UK. He came out and criticized the government. He said their language with regards to immigration uh, reflects the kind of language you heard in 1930s Germany. He got massively criticized by the government. He said, look, the BBC is meant to be independent. It's meant to be an independent broadcaster. And so a lot of pressure came on him for these tweets. And then it was announced that the BBC said he would be stepping back from broadcasting this weekend. He came out and said, no, I didn't. I've been removed. Um, and what happened was the two main pundits, uh, Alan Shearer and Ian Wright, two ex-footballers as well, announced, well, we're not going to do it. And then if every possible person who said they, who, so, who could have been somebody who could have replaced him on the show, said they're not going to do it either. And so if all the professional sports people came back and said, we're not getting involved in this. Then they ran the show, but they ran the show with no intro, no commentary because all the commentators pulled out. No interviews with the players. So the show ended up being 20 minutes long and it was basically the goals without any commentary. It was really, really weird. And they were forced into a corner because everybody backed Gary Lineker and said he should be able to have this, this speech because there are other people within the BBC who do make political comments, but they 
it's kind of ignored because they are their political comments maybe support the current party in power. And so the BBC has now had to back down and he's retained his position. And so it was a big defeat and an important defeat for free speech in the UK, which is flimsy at best already. It's funny. I, I, a loose analogy is uh, and perhaps a bit more controversial is, is in Canada, of course, it's hockey and the, the, the national pastime is um, Hockey Night in Canada on the, on the CBC and famously a commentator with a very checkered set of comments in the past by the name of Don Cherry. I don't know if that's a name that, um, that you're familiar with, but, um, and he was ultimately fired from Hockey Night in Canada in, in 2019. Um, and uh, he's been sort of, um, you know, canceled, I guess, um, in Canadian culture. I, there wasn't the same, there was a backlash for sure, but it wasn't effective, I guess. I don't know all the details because, again, I, I live in the U.S., but um, it's just funny how the cultures have very similar you know, uh, hockey night in Canada is is your your football, and and um, and so yeah, it it it's it it is a fascinating time. It's a scary time, and as you said, we both know where this goes, <laughs> and and people think you know it hasn't happened to me yet, so it's not a big deal. And yep. um, and to be fair, it hasn't really happened to me yet, <laughs> and I think it's a big deal. <laughs> I think that's the difference, you know. And, and sometimes I wish I could turn it off. You know, life's pretty good. I, why don't I just like swim with the current for a while and see how that goes, you know, but it's just not, um, not our intellectual makeup. So. Yeah. It's, I used to be a big fan of the BBC because, uh, being a state sponsored broadcaster, uh, there was a lot of suspicion around it. And therefore, you know, in some ways it was highly regulated. There were you know, various committees or whatever that, that would ensure that it is being as impartial as possible. And look, you always knew there was a slight bias towards government that did exist. Um, but at the same time, corporate media itself has its own biases. I mean, Rupert Murdoch, Sky News has its own biases. It's, it's, you know, whether it's uh, Sky News TV or The Sun or The Times, which he owns, they would pick which party they're supporting. So you know, whether it's independent or state-sponsored, you always knew there's different biases. Um, and, and, and there are parts of, the, parts of the BBC I do still like. They do do some good reporting and do do some good TV work. I don't know what the correct answer is to all this, but I just think itself was a very important win for free speech in the UK. And I think I, what I hope is we're going to get more of these wins. But anyway, listen, I'm going off a tangent here. I, I want to go back to the point. It's like, what do you, what do we do, man? What, what do you think we do? Well, you have two choices. You um, do nothing, swim with the current and hope it gets better or goes away, which is probably what most people will do. Or yeah. um, you use your platform, however big or small your platform might be to politely engage in debate, which is what we try to do through the Doomberg platform. So we're, we don't shy away from these controversies. We, we have our opinions. Um, we write about them. Um, sometimes that annoys our subscribers. I'll give you an example where we um, wrote a piece that we knew would probably upset some of our subscribers. Um, this was um, the piece that we wrote and made free to the public about the train derailment in Ohio. Yeah. And the, the complete and total hyperbole around that incident was off the charts and it had quickly um, evolved into a political weapon to hammer the Biden administration, especially his um, secretary of transportation, who has become sort of a perennial target of the right. Um, people would probably characterize Doomberg as a center-right libertarian publication, and, and we would concur with that. And so we knew that by saying, look, here's what's really happening here, and this is not an issue that should be used to hammer the Biden administration effectively, if you read between the lines, um, we got scores of infuriation, infuriated emails, you know, people that were just infuriated 
that we would um, stand up to this mania because in their mind, um, for example, the thing that angered people the most was we said, we actually think this document that the EPA put on their website is correct, which listed the contents of all the rail cars and what happened to them. And the reason why we said we're trusting our analysis on that document is because it was published before this became a controversy. It was online at the EPA website before this blew up, before this mushroomed into this political controversy. And the piece was called Railroaded, and we um, systematically went through each of the rail cars and explained what was in them and what the likely consequences of either the spill or the fire um, was, and said correctly, um, this is a very big deal locally. It is something to keep an eye on regionally, and it is not a very big story nationally. These things happen all the time, and we shouldn't overreact. And the immediately people put it into their uh, team sport game of gotcha. You know, this was the glasses through which they read that piece. Not everybody, not even the majority, but a very loud minority. Um, I'm canceled. We lost many subscribers for it. You'd be amazed, you know. Like, but we knew that when we wrote it, we committed to ourselves that we would do it. We um, and decided that the the brand ambition of Bloomberg can withstand. You know, we built up enough credibility with our readership that they wouldn't. As we said. Um, if there was true doom here, we would have written about it because this is in our center of expertise. We come from the commodity sector. We, this is what we know. And I had uh, at least as many outpouring of support from executives in those industries saying, thank you for bringing you know, a bucket of sanity to this fire of hyperbole. <laughs> but the thing is, it makes you a more of a trusted source, which is, I think, yeah, we talked about Rogan earlier. I think that's why he's become a trusted source because whether you agree with him or not, he isn't partisan, and uh, you always believe what he says is what he actually believes, whether you agree agree with him or not. And there is too much audience capture now within, I think, within inde- independent media because it suffers from the same incentives. But if you're willing to go out and go against what your readers are expecting, and you're willing to lose you know, readers and subscribers to tell the right story, ultimately it makes you more of a trusted source. Yeah, our rule is we would never write anything we don't believe in the moment that we wrote it. Period. Um, that's rule number one. Um, and then uh, rule number two is uh, if we can't defend it, we shouldn't write it, <laughs> right? Um, and look, we've been very fortunate. We've grown a large audience. We've been able to be successful on Substack. And so it's easy for us to say, oh, we're willing to withstand the several dozen people that angrily unsubscribed and let us know about it on the way out. Um, but you know, Joe Rogan could take the easy way out too, and, and he doesn't. And so we would much rather be smaller and more trusted than larger and um, have less durable engagement with our audience, right? And I could tell you that if we started a completely new Twitter account today, after everything we've learned on Twitter, um, not associated with Doomberg whatsoever, um, we could grow that account to a million followers in less than a year. Yeah. A very, very systematic formula to do that. And, uh, and uh, intellectual integrity would not be a key element of that recipe. Yeah, it was. Look, it's the same doing a podcast. If you said to me, look, Pete, I want you to have a record month of 2 million downloads. I know how to do it. I know which guests to get. I know which topics to cover. I know which opinions to hold. But uh, I always think you've got to try and maintain that like personal integrity. And even in the face of people criticizing, I mean, you go onto my YouTube, my comments are you know, largely criticized for being a little bit I don't consider myself on the left, but I'm sympathetic to people on the left. And I, I get the same. But look, you, you, I think it's important to push through that kind of like uh, inertia that comes with, 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 you know, with, with holding into you know, intellectual honesty. So I commend you for it. Wow. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm a subscriber because 
I don't actually see a political persuasion in what you're doing. I see alignment, but I don't see uh, I don't see it as a bias. Yeah, but like the ultimate example is um, my wife and kids are far to the left of me, <laughs> and I love them, and hopefully they love me. You know, it um, like we coexist in a home where I can assure you that my wife and I have never voted uh, in the same way. And uh, one of my children just became a voting age, and now I'm outnumbered two to one. Um, I, I used to be able to joke that at least I got to cancel my wife's vote. Uh, that's no longer the case. And, um, but again, we can have political disagreements and be a family. Hmm. And uh, one of the best decisions we ever made is we closed comments on our Substack to paying subscribers, um, even for the free pieces that we put out. Interesting. And, and, we, and by the way, the discourse is elevated. These are, um, we still get criticized. And, and the first thing we do when we get a, a politely expressed criticism is thank them, of course, and then explain why you know, we have a different position than them. Um, but we have, a, we have a joke here. It's like, you control us all you want, but you have to pay for the privilege now. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. All right, listen, is there anything I've not asked you about today with relation to this that you wish I'd have asked you? No, I think we covered it pretty good, just like last time. I always enjoyed the, the, com- the conversation with you, Peter. And, uh, yeah, I love thanks, it, man. Thanks for, thanks for having me on again. No, you're always welcome. Um, just continue what you're doing. I love the emails. I think they're great. Uh, all of us here at What Bitcoin Did, there's uh, seven of us who work on the show. We're all big fans of what you do. Um, d- where do you want to send people listening? Uh, we would prioritize people heading straight to Substack. Um, do not pass Twitter. Do not collect $200. You know, the, um, uh, in all seriousness, yeah, we're, our work is at Substack, at doomberg.substack.com. Uh, we're very proud to partner with Substack, who's a, a a really, uh, I think, courageous startup, and we do hope they succeed, and we're doing everything we can to help them succeed uh, in, in big and small ways. Um, we are still on Twitter, of course, at Doomberg T. Uh, Twitter is, is a bit more challenging these days, and we've kind of pulled back from it a little bit just for our own mental safety. I told you about our editor earlier, but mm-hmm. uh, we are publishing six to eight pieces a month. Uh, we always try to make them, you know, we live and die by every piece. Our goal is that the latest piece is our most favorite, always. And if a piece doesn't uh, reach that level of... Um, you know, generally, we were excited to publish uh, Don Jerome this morning. And um, the day where we're not excited to publish a piece is the day we won't publish a piece. And that's our commitment to our audience. Uh, once again, Peter, uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, love chatting with you and best of luck to you uh, as things go forward. Yeah, no worries. Listen, we'll share that all out in the show notes. Uh, I, have, I advise anyone listening to subscribe. The emails are brilliant. Uh, uh, like I say, we love them. We read them all here. I certainly read them all. Uh, yeah, and keep doing what you're doing. Good luck. Congratulations on the success. I hope you continue to grow. I think you're uh, and a really important news source, especially on the energy side of things. It's been really helpful to me because I have a lot of my thoughts or understanding of the energy sector has shifted over the last year or two, and, and uh, your work there has been very helpful. So thank you. Keep going. I'm sure we'll talk again in a few months. Thanks, Peter. Okay, what do you make of that one? You know what? I always enjoy talking to Doomberg and I really enjoy their email service. Please do go and check it out. I'm a subscriber. It's well worth the money. Now, as you know, I don't love doing remote shows, but with Doomberg, we have to do them. So he will always be welcome on the show whenever he wants to come on. Also, a quick update on Real Bedford. Another big win this weekend. We are heading into the final seven games of the season and we are looking very good for promotion. The trophy is in sight. We have a whole bunch of activities planned for the final weekend of the 15th of April. We've got What Bitcoin Did Live with Jeff Booth coming. We've got James Lavish coming. We've got Ben Ark. We've even got Loris Lepard. If you want to join us, 
for any of that the final games our hangouts head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on wbd live right i will see you all on wednesday if you want to reach out to me got anything you want to ask you can email me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com or you can jump into our patreon which is patreon.com forward slash whatbitcoindid 